all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasaya Bhutale, Sri Mate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nitinamane. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharani Nivasesis Nivani Paskatyade Satarani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamuram Shri Guru Vaishnavam Shcha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha Vanchakalpa Chubhishcha Kripasindabhiya Bhattapati Tanam Pavane Vyobhaisna Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya March 2nd, 2022 in Hawaii Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 30, The Activities of the Pratatis, Text 7. Pinayatasta Bhujamandala Majalakshmya Pinayatasta Bhujamandala Bahishmata Purusha Ahasutan Papanan Parjanyanara Rutaya Sagrinavaloka Pina Stout. 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 In the midst of. In the midst of. Lakshmiya. With the goddess of fortune. With the goddess of fortune. Spardat. Contending. Contending. Shriya. Whose beauty. 
Parivritaha. Encircled. Vanamalaya. By a flower garland. That that's particularly be a forest garland. Vana means forest. Adyaha. The original personality of Godhead. Barhismataha. Of King Prachinibarhi. Purushaha. The Supreme Personality of Godhead. Aha. Addressed. Sutan. The sons. Prapanan. Surrendered. Parjanya. Like a cloud. Nada. Whose sound? Rutaya. By a voice. Sagrina. With mercy. Avalokaha. His glancing. Srila Prabhupada's translation. Around the neck of the Supreme Personality of Godhead hung a flower garland that reached to his knees. His eight stout and elongated arms were decorated with that garland which challenged the beauty of the goddess of fortune. With a merciful glance and a voice like thunder, the Lord addressed the sons of King Puchini Barishat, who were very much surrendered unto him. Shula Prabhupada's purport. The word Adyaha in this verse is very significant. The Supreme Personality of Godhead is the origin even of Paramatma and Brahman. As confirmed in Bhagavad Gita 1427, Brahmanohi The Absolute Truth begins not with the impersonal Brahman, but with the original personality of Godhead Krishna. When Arjuna realized Krishna's greatness, he addressed him in this way, Padam Brahma, Padam Dhamma, Pavitram Padamam Bhavan Purusham Shasvatam Divyam, Adideva Majam Vibhum. You are the Supreme Brahman, the ultimate, the Supreme Abode and Purifier, the Absolute Truth and the Eternal Divine Person. You are the primal God, transcendental and original, and you are the unborn and all-pervading beauty. Bhagavad Gita 10.12 The Brahma Samhita also says, Anadir Adir Govinda Sarva Karna Karnam The Supreme Lord is not caused by anything, Anadi, but he is the cause of all causes. The Vedanta Sutra says, Janma Desya Yataha The Absolute Truth is that from which everything emanates. The Absolute Truth is described as Adipurusha. The absolute truth is therefore a person and is not impersonal. Pina yatashya bujamandala madjalakshmya spardach triya parivrito malayadhyaha barishmata purusha aha sutta prapannam parjanya narutaya sagrenavalokha around the neck of the Supreme Personality of Godhead hung a flower garland that reached to his knees. His eight stout and elongated arms were decorated with that garland which challenged the beauty of the goddess of fortune. 
with a merciful glance and a voice like thunder, the Lord addressed the sons of King Prichinabarishat, who were very much surrendered unto him. So Srila Prabhupada's focusing in his purport on the word Adya and uh, to some extent the word Purusha. So here we have Adya Bodhishmataha Purusha. So uh, my dear king, uh, dealing with King Prichinibari, the son of King Prichinibarishat, uh, the Lord comes who is the Adya Purusha, who is the first man, the first person. And Prabhupada, of course, is making the point here that he makes over and over again that the ultimate manifestation of God is personal. So in this purport we find Srila Prabhupada's indication of his mission. Uh, Srila Prabhupada, as far as I understand, wrote the Pranam Mantra for himself, Nirvaseshus and Nirvadi Paskachyadesatarani, that he's going throughout the world, the Western countries of the world, and he is defeating impersonalism and voidism. He's establishing that God is a person. I mean, it's interesting uh, because the focus, the focus of this verse is on the Lord's uh, garland. A lot of the verse is about the Lord's garland and the Lord's voice. <laughs> and uh, those are, of course, details of personality that you can be wearing a, a necklace of forest flowers and that you have a voice like thunder. So those are details of personalities. But Srila Prabhupada in this particular purport is not focused on the details that indicate that God has a form and a personality. He's focused on the fact that, hey, God has a form and God has a personality and God's form and personality are his ultimate beyond his impersonal feature. I mean, when I was uh, growing up, the way I was taught in religion is that God's ultimate form is impersonal and that even to imagine uh, God having a personal form or any kind of form was blasphemy. <laughs> it was The greatest offense was to think of God having a form. And so as a child, I remember sometimes wondering, you know, what does God look like? And then stopping myself and saying, you can't do that. You, you can't think of what God looks like to speak a description like this uh, with such detail about the form of God. And even those who have some idea that God is a person, are many times their understanding is very sketchy. You know, they're seeing God as, as Jesus. And they say, of course, there's God the Father, but what does God the Father look like? They don't know. Well, Adya, he's very old. He's the first, so he must look old. <laughs> as if anybody would want to be eternally looking old. You know, um, any of us who are old, <laughs> we're not so happy <laughs> with with the old look. <laughs> we would much prefer the young look. You know, there there's no uh, cosmetic business, except in the theater, of course, for how to make young people look older. Uh, there's a huge multi-billion dollar, I'm sure, cosmetic industry and, the, of course, so many other things. How to look younger. How to put things on your skin to disguise your age and make you look younger. How to eat things that make you look younger. How to exercise and make you look younger. How to wear clothing that fools the eye and makes you look younger. 
uh, or how to get plastic surgery to make yourself look younger. I don't think there's an industry in how to make yourself look older. <laughs> and yet they're thinking that because God is the supreme, he's the first, that he must look really old forever. Uh, what a strange idea. So we don't, we want to be young. So of course, uh, although God is the first, he's always young. So there are those who say that this, this form of the Lord, that who's wearing a garland and who has a voice like thunder, is just an illusion. Like the followers of Sankaracharya say like that. Or there are some that say, well, this form exists, but the impersonal is higher. This form is a, is a temporary manifestation of the impersonal. Or if they know God, they know God simply in relationship to this world, as the creator of this world, as the maintainer of this world, and, and so forth. Uh, but here in today's verse, we have a little hint of the Lord as... This is the beginning, but yet ever youthful, ever beautiful, and who's filled with rasa. And we have some, some indirect indications of that in this verse. Going on. So we talked about that there are those who think that the whole... Muted. Unmuted. That, uh, there are those who think that the whole concept of a personal God is, is an illusion. That there's, it's just some anthropomorphic thing. Then there are those who say, yes, there's a personal idea of God, but the impersonal is higher. The personal comes from the impersonal. And then there are those who have a personal conception, but it's only dealing with the material world. And then we're going to look a little bit at this form that's being discussed in today's verse. So those who just say that it's illusion, they just say there, there's no such thing as a personal God, and you know, it's just some anthropomorphic thing. You know, we're, we have our relationships here, we have our forms here, and we're wanting some kind of perfect being, and so we just create it and imagine it. So this is, of course, a very cynical view, and it's a view held by the atheist and, and also by some of the agnostics, um, and perhaps even by... Uh, some of the impersonalists who just simply say there is no personal form. It's an imagination. There is only the impersonal. There is only the energy. The only manifestation of God is like that. Or, you know, and a lot of people who say that, you know, we are all God. We're all one. Which, of course, uh, has some truth to it. We accept the Achinta Beta Beta Tattva, that there's in one sense uh, we are all one. Uh, not that each of us is God and that each of us is the creator and the maintainer, uh, but that we're all simply one. There are not separate selves, so we exist. We accept that that is also a reality, although it is not the only reality. But those who think that that's the only reality, that any idea of separateness is illusion. And of course, this is the view of Sankaracharya, that uh, concepts of personality, concepts of individuality, I have no sustenance, they've, they've no existence. Now, of course, this philosophy is illogical at its root because Sankaracharya is positing that the reason that we think that I'm a separate person and you're a separate person and God is a separate person is illusion. But 
then they're also saying there's only Brahman, there's only God. So if there's illusion, there must be God and illusion. <laughs> and not only must there be God and illusion, but illusion must have the ability to cover God, which would make illusion stronger than God, which would make illusion God. <laughs> so uh, they really can't get out of this. You know, they try with, as Prabhupada would say, word jugglery, uh, but they can't really get out of it. Now, one reason that this philosophy is attractive is the atheistic demoniac people like the idea that we're all God. And I found it fascinating when I read my late God brother Sadaputa's book, Alien Identities, and he found that demoniac aliens who came to Earth were preaching... Mayavad philosophy, they were preaching that everything is only impersonal and that we are all God. And I, I thought deeply about this, how the demons that are killed by the Lord enter into the Brahman. And we find uh, there are many demons in the Shastra who preach philosophy. And I'm just right now in my systematic reading of Bhagavatam I'm at the beginning of the 10th canto, and Kamsa is speaking to Vasudeva and Devaki after he tries to kill the baby girl and she appears as, as Maya, as Yoga Maya or as Durga. Uh, at one point, Bhagavatam calls her Yoga Nidra, which is interesting. And Kamsa is speaking philosophy. He's speaking about how we're not these bodies, how we're actually spiritual. He's speaking about how everything that happens is due to our destiny and we shouldn't blame anybody. It's, it's interesting, you know, he's, he's speaking this philosophy. So he's a demon. He's actively trying to kill God. Uh, but uh, he has an, a religion. And his religion is impersonalism. So the demons have, uh, they sometimes have a religion of impersonalism. That we're all one. And again, I want to emphasize that our philosophy from Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu of Achintabeta Tattva we do accept this oneness, we just don't accept it as the entire description of reality. We say that the difference is equally existent and equally valid and equally important simultaneously, which is inconceivable, but that both are simultaneously true and both are simultaneously important. But we run into this concept quite a lot, and a lot of the criticism of highly personal religions such as Gaudiya Vaishnavism and other forms of Vaishnavism is, is that we're just imagining this. I'm, I'm in, the, uh, in the process of reading a book by uh, Professor David Haberman who's a member of the Balava Sampradaya and also an academic about the worship of Govardhan, the worship of, of, of the hill of Govardhan, the worship of the stones of Govardhan and he starts the book uh, describing a family living in Govardhan and how that family, you know, they're feeding their stone and they're dressing their stone and they're worshipping their stone and how this just seems, this sort of behavior just seems completely absurd to so many people in the world. I mean, uh, even if we're thinking about uh, the rejection of the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox by the Protestant and their use of icons. So uh, the same thing where they say this is idol worship. Uh, it's, they just find it inconceivable. 
that, that God has as a form. And unfortunately, many, some of these people are Brahmavadis, they're not offenders. They just think that everything is impersonal. But some of them are actually offensive, and they, they will deride any description of the, or the form of the personality of Godhead and saying that this is, this is just wishful thinking on your part. It's just uh, imposition. It's just projection. And then there are those who acknowledge that there's both the personal and the impersonal, but they think that the impersonal is higher. So I know when I first contacted Krishna Consciousness, that was how I interpreted Srila Prabhupada's books. Uh, I know Ravinda Srupabhu said that he had the same experience. So I was so schooled in impersonal thought from childhood that when I was reading about Krishna's pastimes and Krishna's form, I assumed that it was some sort of temporary manifestation of the impersonal, which again logically doesn't really make any sense. From a logical and a theological point of view, it really doesn't make sense. Uh, but I was thinking like that, that the impersonal is the ultimate, the impersonal is the highest, uh, but the impersonal may manifest a form. Uh, and and I, I remember, and it's funny, when I read this by Ravinda Sarup, I thought, oh, I had the same experience. That uh, he had been visiting the temple, I was actually living in the temple at that time, I had, I had joined to stay and hearing the devotees talk about, oh, the, the personal is the original, the impersonal is a manifestation of the personal. And I was just shocked and I thought, how is that possible? Isn't the impersonal higher? So that's kind of thinking that in the ultimate reality there's only impersonal and somehow or other this impersonal conglomerates into some sort of form that incarnates on the earth and then again becomes impersonal. So they, they just think that, that the impersonal is, is the higher principle. Now, of course, what's interesting about this is that uh, every devotee thinks that whatever their understanding is is, is highest. And also there are many, many people throughout history and at the present time, who've gained impersonal realization of God. So that's their experience. They've gained Brahman realization, and they just don't know of anything higher. And so they're just making this assumption that other realizations must be lower than what they have achieved. They, they just can't imagine that there's something higher. Of course, there are impersonalists, who, when they see the form of the Lord, realize that they are seeing something higher. And, of course, the four Kumaras and Sukadeva Goswami are the exemplars of this phenomenon, where someone who's already Brahman realized, they see Bhagavan, and they're, they are so in... Oh, wow! Bhagavan is, is a much more complete manifestation of the Supreme than is Brahman. Then there are those who know the Lord as a person, but only in relation to this world. You know, people who think that Jesus is the ultimate God and that Jesus' eternal form has this, this stigmata, the, the marks of the crucifixion in his hands and feet. And it's, you know, I find this rather amusing and, and perhaps a bit disturbing that... <laughs> Uh, you know, I guess before Jesus appeared, God didn't have those marks, and now he does, or, or something like that. And uh, it, it, I, I find it a little, a little quaint and a little sweet, perhaps. But 
Uh, they'll think like that, that this is the ultimate form of God. And of course, there are many Christians that have some concept that there's the Son, the Father, and the Holy Ghost, that there is a Father form of God. And as we said earlier, they see him as often as either they just don't describe his form or they describe his form as being, you know, an elderly gentleman, <laughs> um, which is, is rather sad. <laughs> so they're, they're putting some kind of, of concept on God the Creator, but they really don't think about God as having his own life, so to speak. I mean, it, I think it's like if you work in you have you know some kind of job and you're dealing with other people at your job, maybe you're dealing with your boss, and you might not know anything about your boss's personal life. You might not know: Does your boss have a spouse? Does your boss have children? Where does your boss live? You know, what did they? What does your boss do for? Entertainment. You might have no idea. Your knowledge of your boss might be completely, totally limited to the workspace. And this is certainly true of people we interact with in a business relationship. So we have people that, you know, maybe there are plumbers or carpenters or something or a car mechanic, and we might know their name. Oh, that's Joey, that's Sam, that's Betty. Uh, but we don't know anything about their life. And, you know, we've never met the people in their life. We don't interact with them on that area. Now, of course, we have some assumption <laughs> that, like, I have a life outside of work, so probably my coworkers and my boss do as well. Uh, but there are people who, who don't make that assumption about God. So God is just the creator. God is just the maintainer. Uh, his His main job is... It's just looking after us. I mean, I find it interesting, the concept of a guardian angel. Now, perhaps there are higher beings who are in charge of certain humans. I was thinking of about it the other day, like, at, like in social services, there'll be a caseworker, and the caseworker has clients, right? So it's like I was calling the Social Security office, and I said, you know, do I get a particular person who will deal with me. And they said no, although <laughs> when I used to live in Washington State, I did have a designated person. So this concept of guardian angels, it's like you have your designated government caseworker who takes care of you. Of course, they take care of probably hundreds or maybe thousands of, of clients, and not just one. And again, they have their own life in addition to that. But people think of God like that, that his concern and the concern of his servants is just this world that we know. And some of them think it's just the earth, you know, and in this vast, vast universe with uncountable heavenly bodies, whether they're planets or stars or whatever they are, suns, whatever the, the specks of light in the darkness are that somehow the, that this one little speck out of uncountable billions is the only one that's the concern of God. So this is some idea of God as paramatma. God is the witness, God is the friend, God is the judge. And he has some sort of a form. I, I remember getting this Christian pamphlet that showed God as a faceless man in a suit sitting on a throne, uh, reviewing people's lives and deciding whether they were going to go to heaven or hell. And now sometimes people with this concept, they also have an idea of heaven. 
and their heaven tends to be something within this world, something where you go and you, you're with your departed family members, uh, which might not work if you didn't like your family members. <laughs> I sometimes think about this, you know, that somehow th- this one life is it, and, and then you're with your family members forever, you know, you have some uncle or auntie or cousins, or maybe even your parents or your siblings, and you really didn't like them. And now there you are with them in heaven, and Maybe you don't really like the way you look or you don't like your gender or something, you know. There you are stuck like that uh, for eternity in this, in this heaven and it's just, it's a nice place. <laughs> and so they're, they're thinking of God like that. And, and I believe that, that often people who see God only in this way, they are, see him personal, as a personally, but they only see him in relationship to this world, that a lot of, a lot of those sort of beliefs and those sort of ideas contribute to the first category we talked about, those who just think that any personal idea of God is imagination and wishful thinking and anthropomorphism because a lot of the people who have descriptions of God in heaven, you know, you're really wondering <laughs> to what extent are they just imposing, you know, well, I'm just going to have a perfect life and I'm going to have it in, in heaven with God, uh, with my family forever. You know, or, or nowadays, have people go through so many divorces and remarriage, you know, so which, which spouse are you going to be with in heaven? <laughs> or is it going to be something very complicated? <laughs> so, you know, or what age are you going to be in heaven? If you die when you're two, are you eternally two? And if you die when you're 90, are you eternally 90? You know, how does that work? Uh, I guess we would all want to die when we're 20 or something. Uh, there's all these unanswered questions because the, the concept is ultimately absurd. It's a concept of God that's still based on this body, it's based on this planet, it's based on this life, it, it's not expansive. And it may come to the point even of Paramatma, but even then of understanding something of Paramatma. But it's still this very limited, very human-centered uh, view of God. So then we have the description here of a particular form, and of course, I, I thought it was interesting. I don't know. Christians believe there's no marriages in heaven, so how does that work? Surely they believe that there's male and female. So <laughs> anyway, just you end up with all these ridiculously unanswered questions, unanswerable questions. I do find it interesting. In today's verse, we have this Ajya Purusha. But the form of the Lord that's being described is not Krishna, it's Vishnu. And it's Vishnu with eight arms. So we might say, well, wait a minute, you know, I thought that Krishna is the original, all the other forms are emanations from Krishna, and here it seems that Vishnu is described as the original. And of course the answer to that is there really is no difference between Krishna and Vishnu. Uh, They're the same person, they manifest, and they are in different moods, they manifest their form differently. And that's really all there is. Uh, depending on the mood of the Lord, he manifests different forms. And we do that to some extent in this body. So my body changes depending on what emotions I'm experiencing. And I certainly change my appearance depending on what job I'm doing. If I'm working in the garden, I'm going to dress differently and comport myself differently than if I'm cooking in the kitchen. And for Krishna, this is a complete change of, of form. Uh, so, but let's look at this form for a minute because this is wonderful description here. 
and I really like this this concept of the flower garland really being described. This his arms, so his arms are stout. Of course, Srila Prabhupada didn't like artists drawing Krishna's arms as muscular, you know, which is what we think about in this world when we think about masculinity. Uh, the the male form has much greater upper body strength than the female form, and men particularly like to develop their upper body muscles. So we think about the arms, you know, the, the chest and the arms of a very manly man are very muscular. Uh, but Prabhupada was like, no, you know, Krishna is he's the strongest, but he's very soft. So he's st- his arms are stout here. They're not skinny. <laughs> uh, but he's not, he doesn't have muscles and veins like a human body. And his arms are very long. The descriptions are always that Krishna's arms are very long, that the Lord's arms are very long. That's one of the signs of an auspicious personality. And then he has this garland made of forest flowers, Vanamalya, Mala. Mala means necklace, so a forest necklace. But here that implies that it's flowers. And it's interesting that the flowers are forest flowers with Vishnu. I mean, we think of Krishna, who's basically living either in the forest or in a village next to a forest. And he's very much a forest god <laughs> and a sylvan god. And his his scent is that of, of a forest musk and camphor and, and sandalwood and a guru, a very masculine forest sense. Uh, and forest flowers, generally we think of as they're, they're not cultivated. They're wildflowers. Whereas... In a, in a city, Mathura, Dwarkar, and Vaikuntha, the great cities, certainly there are gardens, and in the gardens there are cultivated flowers, and cultivated flowers uh, usually are different from forest flowers. But here we find that Lord, the Lord here is Vishnu on Garuda, with eight arms even, that he's wearing again forest flowers. So there's some, indi- there's some indication that although... He's here in a majestic form. He's still wearing fa- wearing a garland of flowers from a forest, and these flower this flower garland is encircling, and in the middle of his eight arms, exactly how that works. You know, our, our artists often just draw the garland in front of all of the arms, like in front of all four arms or in front of the eight arms. Uh, but here the garland is described as encircling, and I'm sure it's a challenge for the artist, like, what do they do with the shoulders? You know, are there eight shoulders, and, and how does that work? And where would the garland go? And, and those sort of anatomical questions that, you know, when you're studying art, you spend a lot of <clears throat> time studying the human body. We have wooden forms that we study, and, of course, in, in art you also have a lot of nude models that you draw, and one of the reasons for that is that you really get a sense of the skeletal and muscular structure of the, of the body. But of course the Lord's body is different, and, and how to imagine that. So they're encircling his arms, and what's really amazing here is that the, the garland is challenging the beauty of Lakshmi Devi. So... It's interesting. Lakshmi is called Sri, and Sri means Sri, and Sri means also beauty. So Sri means beauty, and it is a name for Lakshmi. She's the epitome 
of beauty. Now, of course, uh, elsewhere in the Bhagavatam, it says that Lord Vishnu defeats the beauty of Sri. And generally, in this world, when we think of beauty, we think of the female form. That if there's a beautiful female form and an attractive male form, we think of the female form as being more attractive than the male form. And just like, you know, men's magazines are full of pictures of beautiful women and women's magazines are full of pictures of beautiful women. And generally, a beautiful woman is used to advertise just about anything. I mean, sometimes they'll use an attractive man, but uh, the, the concept is that the female form epitomizes beauty to us. And so we find in Vaikuntha that the Lord's form, the masculine form, is defeating the beauty of Lakshmi, but Prabhupada writes that in Vrindavan, the residents consider Radharani's form to be more beautiful than Krishna, and Prabhupada writes in Krishna book in relation to the Rastans that Krishna is not particularly beautiful unless he's with his gopis, unless he's with his, his energies. But here we find it's not exactly the Lord's form that's defeating the beauty of the goddess of fortune, it's his garland. Now, perhaps one could make the argument that Balaram has expanded as all of the paraphernalia of the Lord, and so this garland is a, is a manifestation of Balaram, and therefore the beauty of Lakshmi is being defeated by the beauty of Balaram. And in fact, Balaram is described as being the personification of the Lord's opulence of beauty. So one could explain it in that way, although there are certainly also jivas who take the role of the Lord's paraphernalia in Shantaras, and how a garland <laughs> could be defeating the beauty of Lakshmi. So how beautiful must this garland be beyond understanding? And we don't have it in this verse, but the, Lord, the flowers that the Lord wears are often encircled by bees. Now in this world, when we pick flowers, uh, basically once the flower, flower is picked, it no longer attracts bees. It only attracts bees when it's connected to the living plant. Uh, but these flowers are spiritual and they attract bees even after they're picked. Yeah. And I'm sure the fragrance is amazing. I mean, it's an offense to offer the Lord a flower without a scent. Um, sometimes we don't have much of a choice in the parts of the world where there's winters and we have to purchase flowers from the florist. So often flowers are bred and grown primarily for their appearance rather than their, their scent. Even flowers that are naturally strongly scented like roses. So most of the roses that you purchase from the florists in the West have no scent at all. <laughs> or there are some flowers like chrysanthemums that have kind of a funny, I find, unattractive scent. But I'm sure these flowers that the Lord is wearing, these flowers that are all fully spiritual, have an amazing uh, incredible, incredible scent. And then the Lord's form here, it says his merciful glance, and he has a voice like thunder, so the Lord's voice is, is uh, consistently described like that. Uh, very deep and very commanding. Even when he's a little child, he's described as having a, a thunderous voice. So these descriptions of the Lord, Rupa Goswami explains, act as stimulus for love. So uh, in different categories of what's uh, called vibhava, what stimulates love. So the devotee has love in the heart. All the jivas have love in their heart. And the evidence for this, of course, is that even conditioned jivas attempt to love and be loved. Prabhupada says even a tiger has some 
loving propensity and some loving interaction uh, with its mate, with its cubs, and so forth. So we, we all living entities have some desire to love and to be loved. And that is simulated in relation to the Lord uh, by the Lord's form and by the Lord's char- uh, character qualities and paraphernalia. So the basic stimulation of that is the Lord himself, who is very beautiful. And then the uh, other stimulants, the Udipanas, are things like his flower garland and things like his voice. So those who have, uh, as Prabhupada would call it, a poor fund of knowledge, (laughs) just like some of us may have a poor bank account. Some of us may look in our bank account, there's not much money in it. So uh, some of us, we look in our knowledge account and there's not much knowledge in it. So if, if one has a poor fund of knowledge and doesn't know, either they only know the impersonal or their their knowledge of how the personal interacts with the impersonal is is sparse or what they know of the personal is just in relation to this world. Uh, what they're missing out on is is a depth of love. I mean, if you're going to talk about loving God and having a relationship with God, how much can you love just the Brahman? What does that mean, that you you have love for the Brahman? And if you're going to love Paramatma, it's it's very self-related, the whole concept of God in in this world. It's it's not really as much God-related. You're not loving God much for God because you don't know much about God as God you know about God only in relation to this world. So one's ability to love and experience love and experience relationships is going to be crippled without understanding Bhagavan. But of course, understanding Bhagavan, really understanding Bhagavan, Janma Karma Chimejivya is not so easy. And therefore we have all these different misconceptions. So without hearing from a scripture such as the Bhagavatam from a person such as Srila Prabhupada, understanding Bhagavan is practically, practically speaking, uh, unattainable. It may be attainable for some people by Kripa City in some situations, but generally speaking it's unattainable because there'll be so many uh, impositions and fears and uh, misconceptions that one will put onto that. So we're really fortunate. We're not a big percentage of the population of the world, but we are very fortunate. And it would behoove us to really take advantage of this good fortune to meditate on these descriptions of the form of the Lord and to meditate on them not as intellectual exercises, but as impetus for our loving relationship with him. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions... for your class since jumping in. I wanted to ask a question that I have had for actually several years that you've been giving classes on Isanga, but it's about a sort of a minor point that you brought up because you talked about uh, someone who is Brahman realized and at least a couple of the classes that you've given over the years, you've mentioned that you have either met or do know people who are Brahman realized. So my questions are, how did that come to light? Did they say, hey, did you? Did they wear a badge? 
Well, or just, can, yeah, okay. what was their behavior like, and are these devotees of Krishna? So those are my questions. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, there are symptoms given in the Shastra for how you tell who's realized. Yes? Am I correct? Yes. All right. So if you run into somebody who displays those symptoms consistently, and they also explain their realization then it's a reasonably safe assumption that you're running into somebody who's Brahman realized. Okay. Okay? It's just like, you know, if I run into somebody that displays the qualities of uh, an academic professor and they claim that they got a degree from an academic institution, I mean, they could also check up on it, I suppose, um, then, but it's a reasonable assumption that if they're acting that way and they describe themselves that way and they have those qualifications, that that's probably what they are. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really just that simple. Um, I've run into some of these people face to face. I'd say uh, uh, I've also run into such people through their writings. So I've read the write some writings of people that. The way they describe their experiences, the way they describe how they perceive the world and how they perceive reality and what their experience is in life is that of a Brahman realized person. So it would be far more surprising if they weren't Brahman realized than if they were. And are they devotees of Krishna? Uh, Usually not. I mean, I did meet one woman who joined the Hare Krishna movement uh, later in life, like she was around my age, the age I am now when she joined, and she certainly appeared to be a Brahmin-realized person. She left her body not that long ago, I think in Mayapurdam, and she became a devotee of Krishna. So I do know some Brahmin-realized persons who, who became devotees of Krishna. Uh, one person I met, also a lady, uh, was brought up in a South Indian Vaishnav family as a devotee of Krishna and later rejected Vaishnavism for impersonalism. Now, she also appeared, again, by her descriptions of her experience of life and her symptoms to be a Brahmin-realized person. Um, she would go through uh, she acknowledged Krishna as God but she was one of these people who felt that the impersonal was higher so you have some impersonalists who really just don't know about Krishna or to them impersonalism is that it's just all they know and then you have some people who become devotees of Krishna and others who know about Krishna but they interpret Krishna as a temporary manifestation of the Brahman uh, so she would even offer her food to Krishna. And I saw her. I mean, it was interesting. Her offering technique was a little different from ours. But she she offered her food to a deity of Krishna before eating it. But uh, she was definitely an impersonalist. She wasn't offensive. It's just that she was an impersonalist. Thank you. You, you travel so much and you meet so many interesting people, devotees and non-devotees. I do indeed. So, but some of this is some of this is people I haven't met. Some of it's is people whose writings that I've read, and you're just like, oh, this person is clearly Brahmin realized. 
Well, my point is you bring these experiences to, I'm sure, other classes and this class, and it's very enriching. So I want oh, to thank, thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, that in, in dealing with these people, uh, one really appreciates that we know that God is a person. You know, it's it. There, I mean, liberation is a lot more attractive than just material sense enjoyment. But it's it's not anywhere as attractive as having a personal relationship with Krishna. Mm-hmm. It is. It it's just not even the same anything. And in fact, you know, I've given an example of this one woman who um, attained Brahman realization and decided intentionally to come back into separatist thinking so that she could have relationships with people. And she said, I know that it's an illusion, but I'd prefer having relationships in illusion. It's more interesting than just being in the oneness and I'm everyone and everyone is me. I mean, it was interesting. She said, you know... If I, she said, if I thought of anyone, I didn't just understand them, I was them. And I could feel that I am everyone and everyone is me. But I, I, she said, I chose not to, not to stay in that, in that consciousness. I mean, I've also met some, I should also say that I've also met some very advanced devotees who are leaders in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, who had Brahman experiences. And I'm thinking of two people, although I know more than two, but I'm thinking of two people who told me how disappointed they were that they had experiences of Brahman. They had experiences? Of Brahman. It seems to be difficult. That sounds odd. I mean, unless you've experienced personal realization, that um, it wouldn't be wonderful for my realization to kind of be disappointing. It's yes. very, it's described as, as, as millions and millions times greater yes. than, um, than, than even the heavenly planets. It's truly a feature of, it's, it's truly one of God, it's one of God's energy, Brahmati, Paramatma, Kiva, Kamani, Kiva. Well, but if you've already, if you've already known, even though Brahman realization is far superior even to the heavenly planets, because there's no personal relationships, it's not satisfying. So people who don't know anything other than the Brahman, that they do sometimes deliberately return to material relationships just because they're more interesting. And for people who are already Krishna's devotees who have Brahman realizations, they generally find those realizations disappointing. Mm-hmm. That, that's what they've told me. I mean, and these are people that are very solid people that I... I mean, it's not for my business to say their name and tell their story. Um, that's their business if they want to personally tell their story. But they'll talk about these as being disappointing. 
I think you can only be, it seems like you can only be disappointed if you have some understanding of the, yes. the personal well, nature. But, it's but if, you haven't, if you haven't had that, it's like a big, a big step up from even the heavenly planets. Um... I mean, there is Shastra to support that. What is it? That yeah, I, I, I know that, but there's also just Shastra to support, and Prabhupada says it all the time, that someone who attains Brahman realization has a tendency to fall down, Avasuddha Buddha, because they don't, yeah. they don't have the relationships. And I mean, I really, I found it interesting with this one, again, she's a famous lady, and she became very famous because she was very quickly healed from the disease that had killed her after she returned to her body. And it was medically, um, it was medically verified. So because of that, she became very, very famous for her book and so forth. And that's what she said. She said, I, I could know, I, I was God. I could know everything. I was everyone. Everyone was me. There was total oneness. But I, and I was, you know, having joy beyond joy. But I missed my relationship with my husband. That's what she said. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. But uh, said, I, I wanted to have that that illusion of separateness so I could have my relationships. And I'm like, oh, bingo. That's exactly what Srila Prabhupada says happens. And here's here it is. They fall because they haven't because they haven't they haven't tasted the the devotional service in the lotus feet of Krishna. Yeah, so, and, well, and it's, it's, a, it's not our swarup. Yeah, and so this desire, yeah. uh, this desire for relationship and for love, for an exchange of love, is such that uh, the, they'd rather have a material relationship of love, even though they know it's illusion. I guess the flip, the flip side of that is that, is that people become so so burned out from material relationships they're always ultimately disappointing even if you have the perfect relationship sooner or later somebody dies right. and it comes to an end therefore it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the sand in the sweet rice and therefore they become attracted to the Brahman I mean neither is going to work <laughs> a material personal relationship or being in the Brahman are we are Jivaras well, the, the Brahman is very the Brahman, Brahman realization and liberation is undoubtedly very attractive and it is undoubtedly a superior situation than to be in the modes of nature there is no question about it but because it's not the swarup of the soul and because it's not it doesn't involve loving relationships it's, it doesn't satisfy. And the unfortunate thing about Brahman realization, if you don't have the touch of a pure devotee, and if you don't have knowledge that there, is, there are spiritual relationships, then even accepting that it's grossly inferior and grossly unsatisfying, you may come back to material relationship because this urge of the soul for love and, and loving exchange is so strong. 
All right, I have to go. I have a class soon at the Guru I have to teach. Thank you very much, Shilaprabhupada Ki Jai. Thank you so much.